A warm good morning to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor this morning, I will especially welcome you. I encourage you to make contact with me. I'll be at the, in the foyer at the end of the service. I'd love to have a chat with you. Well, this morning we are continuing our sub-series of prayer as thanksgiving within our series in Philippians. We have one more week of this. Last week we reviewed the, the person to whom Paul gives thanks. We covered what Paul gives thanks for, and we covered the manner in which Paul gives thanks. We covered Philippians 1, 3 through 4. Today, we'll be covering Philippians 1, 5 through 6. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open up there with me. That is page 980 in your black chair Bible. To begin this morning, I, I want to share a little story to frame this morning's sermon. The story comes from my time in college. Whenever I was in college, my major was Christian leadership. I really enjoyed the Christian part, not so much the leadership part. And in one of my classes, there was a conversation that arose that I still remember to this day. It actually wasn't so much a conversation as it was someone talking. And this gentleman was talking about his mother's spaghetti. My mother, I love my mother's spaghetti, and this, this man did too. He loved his mother's spaghetti. And as he was talking, he said something like this. He was relaying this conversation that he had with his mother, and he told his mother, Mom, your spaghetti is the best. Thank you. A common compliment that every good son should give their mother for her spaghetti. So what, caught, what, what has led me to remember this was not that statement, but this, the mother's response. Listen to what she said. She said, Don't thank me. Thank God. Hmm. Don't thank me, thank God. So whenever she said this, excuse me, whenever he said this, my mind started processing it theologically, and I've thought about it for the past 10 years. And these are some of the thoughts I've had. Well, did God make the spaghetti? If, she, if he shouldn't give her thanks, then maybe God made the spaghetti. No, God didn't make the spaghetti. If God made the spaghetti, the spaghetti would be far better than how the mother could make it. So, so God didn't make the spaghetti, the woman did. So if she made the spaghetti, why would she not accept thanks? And was that right? Should she have said, well, you're welcome? Or was she right in saying, no, don't thank me, thank God? Well, I don't believe that she was, because the way God works is God uses, God uses people. And if you do something nice for me, let's say you go out of your way to bless me, and I say, well, I'm not going to thank you, I'm going to thank God, one, that's offensive, and two, it's not, pro it's not theologically correct. God works through people. Now, we do thank people, and we also thank God. It is from God from whom all blessings flow. But nonetheless, God uses people, and we ought to give thanks to both people and God. And for those who receive thanks, you should accept it. You should say, you're welcome. So that scenario of kind of a twofold thanksgiving is the situation that we find ourselves in in Philippians 1, 5, and 6. Go ahead and look there with me. Verse 5 is the, is, is the basis of Paul's thanks from people. Why does Paul give thanks to God in verse 3? Well, verse 5 specifies that he gives thanks because of the people's because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. 
So we're going to explore verse 5. That's going to be our first point. And then for verse 6 is the theological basis for Paul's thanks. Verse 5 features the human basis. And verse 6 is going to feature the theological basis. So why does Paul give thanks? Verse 6 specifies because he is sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So that's where we're headed. There's going to be two, two points this morning, and after each point, I'm going to have some application rather than saving application for the end. So two points for you this morning. And the first point, as I've already re- alluded to, I've titled it this, if you're taking notes. The human reality of Paul's thankfulness. This all comes from verse 5. The human reality of Paul's thankfulness. So just to review, go to verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says this, I thank my God. And then he goes to explain who, how he goes about giving thanks and what he's thankful for. And then in verse 5, he gives the reason for his thanks. I thank my God, verse 3, dot, 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 because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what Paul is giving thanks to God for in the lives of the Philippians is this notion of partnership in the gospel. So let's break this phrase down. Partnership, what does this mean? This word comes from the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia has been a word I have referenced a number of times. It is a theologically important word. And koinonia means this. It is the close association, excuse me, it is a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. So you might think of it a way in your life, there's koinonia between a husband and a wife, between parents and their children, between children and their parents. There's this close, intimate, deep connection, fellowship. That's the idea. And another way to translate this word Association, communion, close relationship. So this this idea of intimacy is strong here. The Philippians had a strong, tight-knit bond with Paul and vice versa. Paul had a tight-knit, close relationship with the Philippians. But you see here, Paul doesn't just say because of your partnership from the first day until, until now. He has this prepositional phrase, in the gospel. And Paul specifies that the partnership that they had was in the gospel. It's not just a general, vague, undefined partnership. As Christians, we have a theological content to our faith. And Paul had some foundational elements of this partnership or fellowship with the Philippians. And it's centered in this prepositional phrase, in the gospel. Now, some examples of this occur throughout the book of Philippians. There are a number of ways in which the Philippians fellowshiped in the gospel with Paul, but I'd like to draw one instance to your attention. Look in 2.15, Philippians 2.15. Excuse me, let's start in 14. So here we're exploring an example of this fellowship of, of the, in the gospel that the Philippians had with Paul. What did they do? How did this fellowship in the gospel manifest itself? 2.14, we'll read through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. There's two principles here that I'd like to draw your attention to with reference to fellowship and the gospel. The first is this shining as lights. It occurs right at the end of verse 15. What does it mean to shine as a light? Paul is saying this church is shining as a light in the world. I think it can mean a number of things. I think it can mean evangelism. I'm not going to explore that idea. The idea that I will explore is this notion of holiness. Holiness. And the way I get that as I want you to see what Paul contrasts this shining as lights in the world with right before that phrase. Paul mentions that they live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is referring to the moral depravity in Philippi. Basic to Christianity is the notion that the church lives and acts differently than the world. There is a line of demarcation between Christians and non-Christians. And one of the things that defers Christians from non-Christians is how Christians and non-Christians live. Non-Christians are identified on the basis of being crooked and twisted. They live in sin. And Paul gives these words to describe their sinful lifestyle. Now Christians, on the other hand, are called to live a life of holiness. And Christians living holy lives ends up resulting in their lives shining as lights. Think of a dark, dark room, and there's a candle in the middle of the room. That candle is the life of Christians in it, in the world. It's holiness. I talked about this two weeks ago and in previous sermons. Holiness is essential to Christianity. It's a non-negotiable. You cannot say you love Christ and live any old way. The power of the gospel is so great that it changes us. It's not just something we say we believe. It actually grips us and controls us. And that's the idea here. The, Philippian, the Philippians are fellowshipping in the gospel in a way that they live holy lives. Holy to the extent that they have a witness in the world. And the way they witness is the, on the basis of their lives. They also witness on the basis of their testimony of proclamation but the point I'm trying to show you is through holiness this church was holy we saw that in 1-1 Paul calling this church saints and we see that here and let me pause and make a parenthesis here about this notion of holiness whenever you say that Christians are called to live holy lives there's, an, a, poten there's a potential objection that arises and that objection goes something like this if you encourage holiness, you're encouraging people to have a holier-than-thou mindset. If you say that you're holy, you think you're better than other people. I want you to understand that by affirming holiness in the local church, I am not affirming a holy, holier-than-thou mindset. A holier-than-thou mindset is spiritual pride. Pride is the antithesis, is the opposite of holiness. So it does not follow to uphold holiness means that you affirm a holier-than-thou mindset. 
That's simply not true. It doesn't follow from that. Holiness is the exact opposite of a holier-than-thou mindset. And I'm not affirming that. I am affirming that our lives ought to be different. And in our church, we need to uphold standards of holiness. The final element of the Philippians' participation, going back to verse 5, 1, 5, because of your participation in the gospel, what does that look like? And then in 2, 16, Paul has another prepositional phrase. He says that they hold fast to the word of life. They shine as lights in the world by holding fast to the word of life. This word of life refers to doctrinal purity. This is a teaching element. The word of life is a synonym for the word of God. The word of God gives life, so it can also be spoken of as the word of life. And here we get back to the notion that doctrine matters. It matters what we think about God. The word of life, scripture, matters in our church. And we ought to always strive for doctrinal purity. This is very important. It's a non-negotiable, just like holiness. The Philippians fellowshiped in the gospel by upholding correct doctrine. So taking these two points from 2.15 and 16, the example, the way that the Philippians, going back to 1.5, the way that the Philippians are fellowshipping in the gospel is by means of a changed lifestyle, holiness, and by means of solid and pure doctrine. That's an example of that. And then there's one last prepositional phrase that Paul brings in to discuss the church's participation in the gospel. Look at the end of verse 5, 1, 5. Another prepositional phrase. This specifies the time. How long have they done this? How long has the church in Philippi partnered with Paul in the gospel? Well, they've done it from the first day until now. Paul's using this last prepositional phrase to specify the time. How long have they done it? And Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't tell us what exactly he means by the first day. It could mean the first day that the church in Philippi was established. That's mentioned in Acts. It could mean the first day of everybody's salvation in that church. Or it could also have meant the first day that Philippi partnered with the church through a monetary gift. I'm not sure. Paul doesn't specify. Nonetheless, what is clear is Paul is upholding a notion of steadfastness. Steadfastness, perseverance. In the Christian life, as with any race, it's not how you start or how you're doing in the middle. It's how you do at the end. It's how you finish. And in Christianity, we uphold that principle of steadfastness, perseverance. Keep going. It's very easy to get discouraged in life. It's very easy to slack off in obedience. It's very easy to see the temptation and sin of this world and be discouraged in our faith. But what the Spirit applies to our hearts is this notion of steadfastness. We gotta keep going. And Paul's affirming that here in this church. This church has a long history of partnering in the gospel, a long history of holiness and doctrinal purity. And there's some important lessons that we need to take from this church. The things that Paul is thankful for in the church are principles in which we ought to model. 
as a church. Going back to we ought to follow, we ought to follow others as they follow Christ. We ought to follow the Philippians as they followed Christ. There's some very worthwhile principles that we need to follow as a church, as a corporate body from the Philippians example. And I want you to go to 1.5. One principle, one way we can develop as a church is unity. Unity. Growing in an understanding of fellowship and a love for fellowship. Fellowship is essential to what we do as Christians. We have fellowship with Christ, we have fellowship in the gospel, and we also have fellowship with one another. Now, as we seek to establish relationships with one another, dissension and friction can come into play. But I want you to see the church's example, Philippi's example. I want you to see that part, where partnership is found in. The prepositional phrase is key to understanding how we ought to go seeking unity here. I want you to see what Paul does not say. Paul says we are to find partnership, we are to seek partnership in the gospel. And I define that as holiness and doctrinal purity. This is what Paul does not say. We are not to have partnership or fellowship in mere sentimentality or good vibes. Good vibes is a phrase that millennials use these day, uh, days. I have no idea what it means. We are not to have partnership or fellowship just in good vibes or positivity or world peace or social justice or who we like, preference, the personality of a pastor. Many churches, unfortunately, many churches tend to cohere around the personality of a pastor. Let that not be true here. Felt needs. Are we to have fellowship around merely felt needs or self-esteem? No, these are all false foundations of fellowship and unity. What we should have fellowship and unity in is in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that unity and fellowship does not demand uniformity. There is a certain way in which we can all think differently and we can all view the gospel from a different perspective and yet those things all be true. Doctrine matters, but so does perspective and we need to recognize other people's perspective. Unity does not demand uniformity. Cults are uniform, right? That's not the type of thinking we want to encourage here. We want to encourage people to have their own perspective. However, that perspective is limited, and it's limited by the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly personal holiness. We ought to strive for that, that this church is a church that lives for Jesus Christ. And also, doctrine. Doctrine matters. Doctrinal statement matters. We want to find our unity in those things, not in personal preference, not in my personality, not in you, how you and I feel, but something above us and beyond us. And that is the gospel. Not uniformity, but unity. Deep fellowship with one another in the things that matter. That's, the, that's what we can learn from the Philippians example. So that's our first point. The second point, coming from verse 6. If you're taking notes, write this. The divine reality of Paul's thankfulness. 
the divine reality of Paul's thankfulness. Going back to verse 3, Philippians 1.3, I thank my God. Paul, why do you give God thanks? Verse 5 specifies one reason. He, give thank, he gives thanks to God because of how the Philippians have acted. And then verse 2, he gives thanks for another reason. And this reason is divine. This is the theological reason for why Paul gives thanks. But at first glance, verse 6, if, you're, if you have an ESV, if you're reading from an ESV, verse 6 does not begin with a because. You see how a because begins, begins verse 5? It does not begin verse 6 that way. The ESV reads, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So there's no because in the ESV. In Greek, verse 6 begins with a participle. Participles are hard to interpret. Nonetheless, there are a number of scholars who take verse 6, the participle, as a participle of cause. And what that means is this. Paul is giving thanks, specified in verse 6, because of his persuasion that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Verse 6 specifies another reason. You could also translate it, and because I am sure of this, that he began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So I see verse 6 as giving another reason for Paul's thanks. And this reason, as I've mentioned, is theological. There's three items that I'd like to break down here. I'd like to break down this notion of good work. You see that in verse 6, good work. This notion of beginning. What does it mean that God began a good work in them? And then this notion of completion. First, what does it mean whenever Paul says a good work? What good work did God begin in the Philippians? Well, I think the good work is this notion of partnership in the gospel as specified in verse 5. This holiness, this doctrinal purity. And holiness and doctrinal purity are examples of salvation. What God is bringing about in the Philippians is the idea of salvation. When people are saved, they think correctly about God and their lives demonstrate the gospel. So a good work here in verse 6 is nothing other than the process of salvation. Salvation is a good work in which God produces in us. Next, this notion of beginning. What does it mean that God began this salvation process in the Philippians? Well, I think we get some help here in Philippians 1.29. Look there with me. Philippians 1.29. A powerful verse. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, that's Christ, but also suffer for his sake. So there's two gifts specified in, in 129. The first gift is this notion of suffering for his sake. Wow, that is a gift. The second item, and more relevant to what we're talking about in Philippians 1.6, is this, what Paul says here. For it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Christ. Whenever Paul says that it has been granted that the Philippians should not only believe, he's saying that belief is a gift. He's saying that faith is a gift. To believe in Christ, based upon Philippians 1.29, is something that is granted it's not something that you can conjure up on your own. 
God has a sovereign dispense of it. He dispenses it as he sees fit, as it's granted. And so whenever Paul says that God has began this good work in the Philippians in 1.6, what he means, what Paul means, is that God gave faith to the Philippians. He granted it to them as a gift in which they began believing. Faith is the first step of the Christian life. And to begin in your walk with Christ, for the Philippians to begin in their understanding and fellowship of the gospel, it begins with what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. Faith is a gift and that God has sovereignly dispensed it to the Philippians. And not only does God begin a good work in them, Paul is sure, by the way, if Paul is sure of something, so should we. Paul is sure that what? What is Paul sure about? Paul's sure that God the Father does not forsake the work he began. Paul is sure that God the Father will bring this salvation to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, at the end of verse 6. Now, this prepositional phrase at the end of 6 is very important, at the day of Jesus Christ. It's so important that I, I, I can't spend time on it. It would take us too far off in a different direction. I will address this in the next weeks from pulpit and paper. But to put it shortly, to put it succinctly, this is referring to when Jesus returns. So God the, Paul is persuaded that God the Father will bring about the completion of the Philippians' faith when Jesus returns. And that completion is rising these people from the dead. I want you to see that the work that God begins in Philippians 1.6 is the work that the Father completes. Now to have a beginning point and to have an end point suggests that there's a middle point. God isn't going to begin something let it go and drop it and then pick it up again at the end. The pattern in Scripture is that salvation is a three-part process. There's a beginning. There's an initial reception of faith, justification. I was saved. There's this middle part in which the Philippians find them in, in which we find ourselves in. We're not dead. God is still completing this work in us. And this middle part is called sanctification. We are being saved. God the Father, because of what Christ has done by the power of the Spirit, is producing in us salvation, is allotting to Christians faith, is working in us his good work of salvation. And there's also a final part. And we await that. We look up to the heavens expecting Christ to return. We wait for that. So Paul is specifying in 1.6 that every step in the salvation process, every step of this development of the good work that God is producing in the Philippians, God the Father has his hand in and he is guiding. The salvation is a three-part process and the Father is guiding and directing every step. It began with faith. It's being perfected through sanctification. And we will one day see Christ in our resurrected bodies. God the Father will complete it. Now one point of application on this point. 
And this point, this last point, is more individual. I dealt with the last application point, corporate, what we need to do as a body. This is for individual Christians, and this is for a particular subset of individual Christians. There are many Christians who struggle with assurance. Philippians 1.6 is, is all about God persevering us in his grace. Now the way we come to know that, the way we come to believe, verse 6, is through this notion of assurance. That we believe ourselves that we are children of God. Many people struggle with this though. I myself have not struggled with this. Assurance, struggling with assurance, doubting God's love. I don't doubt God's love. I don't know why that is. I personally don't do that. But many Christians do. I have other struggles, which other Christians don't. But many Christians doubt the Father's love. They doubt that they are Christians. They doubt that the grace of Christ is effective towards them. So my, my application is for you, if you have that sensitivity, if you have that inclination. And in doing this, I need to make a, a, a point before I do it. I do not want to give false assurance to anyone. The Bible says that assurance should be for the Christian. We don't want to assure a non-Christian that they are saved. So there's some tiptoeing that I have to do here. But nevertheless, there are Christians who doubt the Father's love. There are Christians who doubt that the Father will be able to hold them fast. There are Christians who doubt the statement that he will hold me fast. So I'd like to show you two things from verse 6, things that we've already hinted at, but I'd like to drive home. The first point from Philippians 1.6 is that salvation is all of grace. It is all of grace. God doesn't need your good works to save you. God doesn't need anything from you to save you. Your works the things that you believe bring about goodness in your life, don't. All through the process of salvation, it is God who establishes faith. It is God the Father who keeps us. And it is God the Father who will raise us from the dead. We don't just emphasize a little grace here. We emphasize a lot of grace. It's by grace alone. And for those who doubt that, Oftentimes you labor, whether you know it or not, whether you know it or not, under a sense of work salvation. That you've got to prove yourself. That you've got to keep going. Now there is an important notion of striving in the Christian life, but ultimately that striving comes from the Father. And you need to see and know that salvation is only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of you. There's nothing that you can do to merit God's favor. It's all his grace. Secondly, I want you to see that there's a logical connection here in this passage in verse six. There's this notion of beginning and there's this notion of completion. And Paul says that those who he began a good work in, the Father will bring about completion in. And that means this, that God does not forsake his children God the Father will never forsake his children. If God has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. His word guarantees that. And so through your sinning, through your conscience that condemns you, 
for the Christian who consistently struggles with this. I pray that this would be an encouragement to you, that the Father's grip on your life is tighter than the grip you have yourself. His grip is tighter. Philippians 1.6 should be of more precious truth than even your own experience. And that you have to fight your guilty conscience, the conscience that isn't always correct, with the sovereign hand of God and His grace. Every step is because of grace. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can earn that brings about this work in us. It is solely because of God's good pleasure in us. And as you struggle for assurance, consistently and constantly remind yourself of those two things. And at the end of time, when, when you see Christ with your resurrected body, you will say to him, Lord, thank you for sustaining me. Thank you for holding me fast. Father, we thank you for your good grace towards us. We thank you that salvation is all of grace. It is all of grace that all striving, all earning, all seeking to prove ourselves can die. And that we can, by faith, accept what it is that you offer us in the person of your Son. And I pray for the doubters, for the people who struggle consistently with a dirty conscience, for the Christians who, while they do strive, they still are plagued with a guilty conscience. I pray that Philippians 1.6 would be precious to them and that they would see and feel that your grace is enough. And Lord, as a corporate body, we pray for unity. We pray for fellowship in the gospel. We pray that we would uphold godly principles and that your spirit would produce in us as individuals and as a church unity. Not uniformity, but unity. True, deep, gospel unity. Father, we look to you. We can accomplish nothing of ourselves, but solely, completely, and totally. You give us these things by your sheer grace, by your infinite love for us. And we pray, Father, that you would change us and bring about these things in us because of what your Son has done and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.